Thank you for tuning in to the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You're listening to Pastor Jared Verweel as he continues his sermon series, The Gospel Matters. If you'd like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. We're going to look at this passage that Travis read in in Galatians 5. And so if you have your Bibles by now, I hope you have that open. You can follow along as we read. Um, And I did want to encourage you to come on back. Candy, of course, is here today. She's going to come back on the 25th this month to give us just a brief little update and and sharing during our main service. So on July 25th, I believe, is the date we we established. We hope um, you would join us for that so you can hear a little bit more about her ministry. And if you're interested in getting on her uh, prayer newsletter, keeping up with what's going on in Peru on the mission field, just talk to her after the service, and she would love love to meet you and get to know you a little bit. All right. Well, J.R.R. Tolkien is an uh, author. He's probably best known for The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. Uh, but between the time when he wrote both of those, he, he also penned an essay establishing the reason and, and kind of the, the philosophies behind the genre and the characteristics, the traits that he looks to when he pens a fictional story. It's, uh, the essay is called On Fairy Stories, and it's become somewhat of a... Um, a guide to anybody who would write fictional literature. Uh, He identifies the themes, the play that he uses for character development, and just the underlying um, motivations behind how he puts together a story to grip us and to, to really to grab our hearts and our attention when we read it. One of the biggest criticisms against Tolkien was that the stories that he was producing were were children's stories. They were no longer fit or appropriate for the adult life. But these are just fit for, for kids. And so why are you dedicating so much time to writing these, these children's stories? And in his essay, he pointed out three elements that really help us dive in deeper to, to seeing their value and, and to understanding them a lot better. Uh, Tolkien said to his critics that the reason we need these kinds of stories is to see clearer exactly what they mean for us what they meant for us when we were kids. And if we can dive, dig, dig down a little bit deeper, they still have meaning today for us as adults. And he said this, he said, we need in any case, I think I've got this on the screen, to clean our windows so that the things seen clearly may be freed from the drab blur of triteness and familiarities. Tolkien said, we need to clean our windows from the familiarity of, of a good story. Once upon a time, in a land far, far away, there lived a king and a queen and a princess in a castle, and everything was beautiful and glorious at the beginning of those stories. And, and to understand them, we've got to get away from the familiarity and dig down deep into the deeper meaning of the text and see it in a different light. Uh, one of the things he says in his, in his essay is this. He says, it's the mark of a good fairy story or the higher or more complete kind that however wild its events, however fantastic or terrible the adventures it can give to a child or a man that hears it, when the turn comes, and when he uses that word turn, he means uh, the climax or the, uh, the turning point in the story, maybe even a, a step toward the resolution. When the turn comes, a catch of the breath, a beat and a lifting of the heart, near to tears, that we all experience. 
as keen as that given by any form of literary art and having a, a peculiar quality. And he goes on and he says this, this is really good. Even modern fairy stories can produce this effect sometimes. It's not an easy thing to do. He says it depends on the whole story which the setting of the turn happens. And yet, here's what he says, it reflects glory backwards. It reflects glory backwards. There was once a glory so magnificent and so incredible that existed at one point in time. The stories all work back to what was once there. The stories all work back to the time when things were how they were created. Life and existence functioned exactly how God created it to function. And the term he uses to describe that is glory. There was a glory at the beginning. And restoration, turning back now to that glory is, is the story that you're reading. That's the story of scripture. If you look at uh, scripture in its entirely, entirety, in fact, from Genesis to Revela Revelation, um, you probably see four acts of the biblical drama. If you look at the Bible as one grand narrative, everything transpires from creation to fall to redemption through Christ, and then finally, final restoration. And restoration is the key term. Restoration is a key biblical term to understand not only all stories, but God's story, God's redemptive story. He has a plan to restore everything back to how he originally created it, but even, actually even better than how he created it. And restoration is, uh, when we look at, at stories as a whole, we can kind of see, yeah, this is, the, this is the end. This is where glory turns backwards. This is where we experience glory again, but restoration is also a term that the P Apostle Paul is gonna use in this text to describe the restored heart of a Christian believer. The restoration process of somebody struggling and dealing with sin and finally restoring a right relationship to God. Restoration in the Bible is a, it's a key, key theme, and when you think of it more than any other place in the Bible, restoration defines the existence of Israel's story. At the end of all things, Israel will be restored to who she once was, to who she was created ultimately to be. But here in this text, we're gonna see something different about restoration. We're gonna see restoration in the heart of a believer, dealing with sin, confessing it, repenting of it, and glory turned backwards in the heart of a believer. I wanna look at Galatians chapter five, verse 25, through chapter six, verse 10 this morning. And we're gonna see three things about restoration. You're gonna see that there's a, there's a wrong way for Christians to go about restoration, a deadly way. There's also a right way to experience restoration in the Christian life, and then there's a result to the community. You got a wrong way, a right way, and then the result for the Christian community. The wrong way to restoration is given to us first. Uh, let me read these verses again that Travis read for us. Verse 25. The Apostle Paul writes, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, or envying one another. 
Uh, now, there's quite a bit that's lost in our English translations when we read this verse. Literally, if you read this in Greek, this is the structure that you would find. If we live by the Spirit, by the Spirit, we will also follow, or we will also perhaps follow in his footsteps. The structure, this, in this structure, the stress is on the verbs. You've got live and walk or follow at the end of the sentence. And those two things, when this is a kind of a bookend, we call this a chiastic structure when we look at this verse. And in the middle, of course, is the rep- repetition by the Spirit, by the Spirit that's emphasized. All of it is preceded by a condition, if, if we live by the Spirit. And that means at least, at least this, there's a difference between living by the Spirit and following the Spirit, or walking according to the Spirit. And all of us know the Holy Spirit is the, is the power, it's the source, it's the life-giving person of the Trinity that gives to us life, it gives all Christians life. But it's also the Spirit's role to guide the believer, to lead the believer in a, in a mature Christian walk. This word for keeping step with the Spirit, it's only used four times in the New Testament. Romans chapter four, verse 12 says this, follow in the footsteps of. There's another passage in Philippians 3.16 that uses this word for follow or, or walk in the steps of, and it, and it means to hold true to. So if you follow in the footsteps of the Spirit, or if you hold true to the Spirit, you're a mature Christian, walking in obedience, hand in hand, step by step with the Holy Spirit. That's deeper than just living by the Spirit. And this verb is in the subjunctive mood, which means there's a possibility that some Christians will follow in step with the Spirit. There's also a possibility that some Christians will not walk in step with the Spirit. Here's what Paul is saying. All Christians live in the Spirit. Not all Christians walk in the Spirit. Not all Christians keep in step with the Spirit. I love the the fact that we live in a very technology-driven age in my day. Um, Before I leave the house in the morning, I can basically have my carpets vacuumed, my grass watered. I can even get my grass mowed. I can wash the dishes in my dishwasher simply by the push of a button. When I'm sitting in bed in the morning, I can go on my cell phone, turn on the lights that I want, turn on the temperature that I want, and I haven't even really done anything else during the day. It's very possible for me to to clean my car without even getting out of my car. We have an automatic cycle for just about everything in life. However, walking in the Spirit is not automatic. Walking in the Spirit doesn't just happen. Walking in the Spirit is an intentional, submissive faith and following of the leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives on a day-by-day, step-by-step basis. There is no cruise control for the Christian, for our desires, our decisions, and our daily life. There is no autopilot switch that we can turn on and, yep, here we go, we're going to function as mature Christians. And that's especially true when it comes to to life in in a community life in the body of Christ with the family of believers. And so, Paul talks about how the Holy Spirit can be hindered in a family life. And there are, there are two killers to the Holy Spirit really thriving in a church family that Paul points out in the very next verse, verse 26. 
One term refers to those who are strong. The other term refers to those who are weak. All right, so the Apostle Paul says this to the strong. Do not provoke one another. That word provoke only occurs right here in the New Testament. It is a hapax legomena. The Greek has the idea of challenging one another to combat or to an athletic contest. Don't challenge other Christians in your Christian walk. Paul says if you're going to experience the life of the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit, you're not going to challenge one another in the church family and in your Christian life. To the weak, Paul says, do not envy one another. Do not become embittered at their success or their happiness. Do not rejoice at their misfortune. To the strong and to the weak, there are ways that you can hinder the Holy Spirit in the life of a community. But both of those terms, provoking and envying, both of them are participles. And participles are verbal modifiers. They modify the main verb. In the main verb in verse 26, you probably caught it. Let us not become conceited. This is the sin beneath every other sin. And I know when you read verse 26 and you hear Paul say, do not become conceited, you're thinking, hey, just don't be prideful in the Christian life. You can handle this. You can take this on yourself. There is no sin more grave that will lead to more disaster in the Christian life than becoming prideful and conceited against your brothers and sisters in Christ in a community. Literally, the word for conceited means empty glory. It's a kenodoxia. Perhaps, I think the King James Version will say vain glory. And here's what it means. As human beings, we are all very hungry for glory. We search for it. We want it deeply. So deeply, in fact, that we don't even realize at times that what we're living for is destroying us and crippling us. The worst things for a human being to experience is not to be hated in life. It's not to fail. It's not even to experience hardship. The worst thing for a human being, the Apostle Paul would say, is to be marginalized. It's to be thought of as insignificant. The worst thing for a human being is to not matter in life. The thing that the soul is most afraid of is to be unimportant, to be sidelined, or to be marginalized. Therefore, every human being at their core, at your heart, every human being will manufacture their own glory. You will search for it in your own way. You will look for it in your relationships, in your career, in your marriage, in your friendships, in anything that you look to to give you significance, you will search for an empty glory. We are so afraid that we won't matter, and so we manufacture success. We manufacture achievement. We constantly look for the approval of others. We compare ourselves to one another. We provoke one another. We become envious of one another. Vain glory is the sin beneath every other sin that will destroy a body of Christ that leads to a self-centeredness and that will destroy an aspect of restoration in the body of Christ. Before Paul tells us how to restore people, how important restoration is and restoration in the body of Christ and the life of a community, he will tell us what not to do, what will hinder that. And here's what's gonna hinder that. Your search for your own glory apart from the glory of God. It will devastate not only your life, but the life of everybody around you. There's a, there's a wrong way to be a body that is described and characterized by restoration. Number two, 
There's a right way to do it. Look down at Galatians 6, verse 1. Brothers, and, and we are going to just slowly work through this text that is so important. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. What Paul is, is addressing in this passage is a concept called church discipline. Anybody come here looking for a good sermon on church discipline this morning? Well, you got it. So take it up with the Apostle Paul, all right? Church discipline is a, is a heavy thought for a community, especially in our, our postmodern time. Uh, it's the same thing that, that Jesus addressed in Matthew 18, dealing with a, a brother who sins against you. I just want to read these verses because it really seems like Jesus and Paul are at odds here. They're saying something different, but really they're not. They're, they're working towards the same end and the same goal. Matthew 18, 15 through 17 talks about church discipline. It says this, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you. And you're going you're gonna to see a repeated phrase of, of listening in this text. If he does not listen, take two, one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him to be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, what in the world does that exactly mean? Here's what the great Puritan, Matthew Henry, said. Be treated as a tax collector and a sinner means this. Let him be cast out of the communion of the church secluded from the special ordinances, degraded from the dignity of a church member, let him be put under disgrace, that he may be ashamed of his sin, and they may not be infected, they, speaking of the congregation, may not be infected by it or made chargeable with it. And here's why these verses seem so out of place for us, and here's why it's so difficult to talk about this in churches today. Our culture is so different than the first century culture. The first century culture was driven by, by family and society. It was a, a corporate understanding of what's significant, what our traditions and our, the truths that we hold to is going to be established by somebody outside of yourself, a bigger unit, a corporate entity. But today, all that matters is the individual, your wants, your desires, self-gratification and self-centeredness. In today's culture, absolute negative freedom reigns. You don't have a right to tell me what to do or when to do it. I can do anything I want as long as I don't harm anybody else. We function with significance being dominated by power and by money. And so if you're significant in today's culture, that's how you're gonna achieve it. In the first century culture, they were dominated by significance in honor and shame. The things that brought honor to the family were honorable in the culture. The things that brought shame to the family were shameful, shameful in the culture. De Silva is a, a great biblical scholar. He says this, and I'll read this kind of slow. First century Mediterranean people were oriented from early childhood to seek honor and avoid disgrace, meaning that they would be sensitive to public recognition, but they would also be sensitive to public reproach. 
where different cultures with different values existed side by side, it became extremely important to insulate one's own group members against the desire for honor or avoidance of dishonor in the eyes of outsiders, since only by doing so could one remain wholly committed to the distinctive culture and the values of the group. Here's what he's saying. It was extremely important in a first century culture to hold fast to your cultural traditions, to the things that led to honor, and also to avoid the things that led to shame. And if you're gonna preserve that kind of a culture, De Silva says this, you've gotta work hard to do that. It is not gonna be easy. And outsiders are gonna be, try to bring their understandings and their cultural norms into this, and it's not gonna work if you expect for your cultural norms to be preserved. And so there's, there's a lot of differences between church discipline and how we understand that in today's culture versus church discipline and how they practice it in the first century culture. And in order to preserve that biblical culture throughout the centuries, we would say and agree with De Silva, De Silva, you have to be diligent to preserve that and to not bring outside cultural influences into the equation. Today, we don't value church discipline because we don't value honor and shame. We value money and significance and power. We don't understand church discipline because we are, we are empowered by the sovereign self because the heart wants what the heart wants, and that's about as good as it gets. The individual reigns supreme, and when the individual reigns supreme, church discipline from a community means absolutely nothing. So if you're gonna church discipline me, I'm just gonna leave and go to a different church and start all over. So be it, do what you wanna do. Church discipline is, is so important in the process of restoring the soul. There is a way to preserve it in our culture today. I wanna give you just a few guidelines. Number one, church discipline is only for believers, not for non-believers. Church discipline is only for believers, not non-believers. Paul specifically addresses the believers in Galatia with the word that he uses at the beginning of verse one when he says, brothers, family matters are only suited for family members. He is addressing the family members of the group. And here's what Bonhoeffer says, because this seems to be an anomaly, but it is so true. He says, nothing, nothing can be more compassionate than the severe rebuke that calls a brother back from the path of sin. Let me read that again. Nothing can be more compassionate than the severe rebuke that calls a brother back from the path of sin. Church discipline in a, in a body, in a church community, is compassionate. It's not unloving. And yes, there is severe rebuke involved, but it's for the greater good of the church family and the greater good of the person experiencing the discipline. Number two. Church discipline is, is both formal and informal. Matthew 18 would be a very formal process of church discipline. Somebody offends you. Here's, here's what we can do at Tulsa Bible Church to prevent all kinds of crazy conflicts in this church family. Don Dunn, somebody offended him. Guess what, Don? Go to the person and talk about it. Don't come to me. Don't come to Ted, don't come to Bill, don't come to anybody else. First, here's what you need to do. Go talk to the person about it. 
make sure you understand exactly what's going on, that you didn't misread something or, or misinterpret something. If a church would practice that kind of biblical conflict resolution, it will prevent a thousand other mistakes from happening in a church community. Very formal church discipline is you go, go to them one-on-one. -on -one. If they don't listen, you go with another brother. If they don't listen after that, you go to the church, which I think is a reference to the leaders in the church. Not just come up on stage and blur out that you got an issue with somebody. You go to the elders and the leaders to help you deal with it, identify the problems. Informal church discipline is a lot different. Informal church discipline doesn't happen just once in a while in a church. Informal church discipline happens all the time. Informal church discipline happens on a daily basis. It happens over coffee. It happens when Alan and I meet at Panera Bread in the morning to talk about our struggles and our difficulties, to be vulnerable with one another. It happens when you're sitting on the tailgate of your truck watching fireworks, and all of a sudden the conversation turns really serious with somebody that knows you better than you know yourself. Informal church discipline should be practiced daily at a church. And if informal church discipline is being practiced, it makes formal church discipline that much more successful in the body of Christ. But without it, it's that much more difficult. Bonhoeffer puts it this way, God's word demands reproof when a brother falls into open sin. The practice of discipline in the congregation begins in the smallest circles. Here's what we need to do to be a restoring church at Tulsa Bible Church. Here's what is happening here at Tulsa Bible Church. In your small circles, in your small Bible studies, in the people that know you the best, are you vulnerable? Are you open? Are you confessing? Are you repenting? Is the body of Christ in those small friendships loving you through those difficulties in, in life? And it should happen in the, sm the smallest of circles. Paul says this, Who's, who is church discipline for in the church? Brothers, if only the congregants are caught in any sin, brothers, if only the congregants, not the pastor, not the elders are caught in sin, what does he say? Anyone, if anyone is caught in what kind of sin? Are we talking about the Big Ten? Adultery, murder, stealing, lying? What are we talking about? Any sin, not just the ones we think are big and significant, but any sin. There is no sin too big, there is no sin too small, there is no person too high, there is no person too low. No one is exempt from church discipline. This is how a community grows as a, res as a restoring church community, church family. Number three, formal church discipline should involve as few people as possible and church leaders when inevitable. Formal church discipline should involve as few people as possible and church leaders when inevitable. Matthew is clear for the offended person to first go one-on-one. -on -one. If they don't listen to you, you take one or two more, and that's it before it goes to the church. And then the leaders are involved in the process. And no, you who are spiritual in Galatians 6 verse 1 doesn't just mean the elders. It doesn't just mean the pastors, and it doesn't just mean the deacons. Otherwise, it would have said those words in the Greek. It means you who are spiritual. Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. But if you're going to approach somebody in formal church discipline, I would highly, highly recommend 
that the avenue to, to go through is through the elders in a church to handle that with, with grace, dignity, and leadership. Galatians specifically talks to those who are spiritual for dealing with church discipline. Number four, church discipline is for the purpose of restoration, not castigation. Church discipline is for the purpose of restoration, not scarlet letters, tarring pitchforks, torches. Restoration is the key word in Galatians 6, verse 1. To restore is a word that is used 120 times in the Bible. And 90% of those uses are from the Old Testament. By far the most prominent use of the word restore or restoration in the Bible has to do with Israel's restoration as a kingdom. Back to creation, back to the time when sin didn't exist in the world and God's creation was functioning just as he designed it to function. When Jesus returns, literally the kingdom will be restored to Israel. Acts 1, verse 6, Jesus, is this the time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? That's the restoration, the most dominant use of restoration throughout the Bible. The long-awaited, glorious, messianic age where Christ restores everything back to what it once was. Paul uses a term that definitively defines our end times hope in terms of a personal relationship and a repentant heart before God as you acknowledge and confess your sin. If at any time restoration is not the purpose of church discipline, it should not be practiced. And until you are confident that restoration is not available to the person who is experiencing church discipline, you go to them again and again and again and again, always with the purpose to restore, always with the purpose and the goal to restore. Restore them back to Christ and back to fellowship. Number five, church discipline should be carried out in a spirit of meekness, not meanness. Church discipline should be carried out in a spirit of meekness, not meanness. You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch on yourself. Remember, gentleness is an aspect of of the fruit of the spirit from chapter five. A gentle leader is aware of their own vulnerability to sin. A gentle leader dealing with church discipline is somebody who has to do it, not somebody who wants to do it. A gentle leader dealing with church discipline is one who can look into their own heart before they start looking into the heart of other people. And they deal with it in a very gentle context. There is a right way to do restoration and church discipline in the body of Christ, and there is a terrible wrong way to do it. The Apostle Paul gives us the right way. Informal church discipline in Galatians 6, verse 1. And here's the result. Uh, We don't have enough time to to look at all the details of this passage, but I do want you to look down at verse two here. Let me, uh, I'll read through verse five, we'll come back up. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Now, in verse two, Paul is likely throwing a dart at the false teachers when he reads this, all right, or writes this. False teachers first forced the burden of the Mosaic law upon the backs of their listeners and their followers. Paul commanded believers 
freely without the burden of the law to take on the burden of other believers on themselves and therefore fulfill the law of Christ, which I think is, is the law of love in this context. While the burden of verse two is too heavy for a believer, the burden in verse five is a little bit different. We are to bear one another's burdens, but we are also to bear our own burden, our own weaknesses, our own strengths, our own gifts, our own sins that we struggle with. That is our responsibility to bear those things. But we also look to others in the body of Christ to help them through difficulties and difficult times. One reason of a, a restoring church family of dedicated to restoration instead of comparing ourselves to others is we realize that we all have different gifts. We all have different strengths and different weaknesses. We are all responsible for our own gifts, strengths, and weaknesses. And so Galatians 6 verse 5, for each will have to bear his own load, is not very different from Matthew chapter 7. Judge not lest ye be judged. Look into your own heart. Carry those things that are your responsibility just as much as others helping you. Uh, verse 3, if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. A restoring church family is one that thinks little of self, but very much of others. John 15, verse five reminds us that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. Tim Keller put it this way, it takes Christ-centered humility to bear the burdens of other people. This passage is, is so rich in community and the result of a restoring gospel being centered in any church family. We can, we can anchor down a ton on all of these things, but we're just gonna keep on reading. Skip down to verse nine in your text. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, but, and you might make a special reference to this phrase, especially to those who are the, of the household of faith. Any farmer will tell you that there is a painful and a humble delay between sowing the seeds and reaping the crop. Any farmer will tell you that there is a, there's a lot of trust and prayer that goes into the time from planting the seeds in the ground to reaping the harvest when it comes. But doing good is one seed that will always produce fruit if we persevere in doing good. Notice the responsibility is to all of us, but especially to, to the church family. There's especially a responsibility for those who are, who are members, who are a family of a local church that Paul talks about in Galatians 6. In our marriage, there are parts of, of me that are not easy to love. Brandy knows those things. She can probably tell you many of them without thinking too hard on it. But she still loves me despite my difficulties, despite my weaknesses, despite my personality traits, despite the things that are really, at times she says, I really don't like this about you, but I do love you. Church family is the same way. It's really easy to love people that you get along with, that have a special place in your heart, that you seem to gel with them really well, but loving people that have weaknesses, giftings that are different than yours, little personality traits that get on your nerves, it's a difficult thing to do, and the body of Christ 
God designed it that way for us. That people that are completely different than we are can actually create a loving, united relationship based on something that's far greater than either one of us. The truth of the gospel and a relationship that we have with Christ. Being a restoring church family means, a lot of times, looking past offenses. Loving one another through difficulties. Issues that might otherwise get underneath our skin, and and that's how God designed it. But we do good to one another in the body of Christ. We take this thing called family seriously. We commit to one another with the same love and commitment that we have to Christ and what he beckons us to do to, to carry out the one another's, to love one another, to pray for one another, to not forsake our gathering together with one another. All of these things are, are deep, deep principles in the body of Christ, what it means to be a family. So, so let's, uh, let's close this. Let's point out just, just a few things in, in closing an application. Number one is this. For us to be a, a restoring church family right here at Tulsa Bible Church. Restoring one another is not simply a family matter, it's a gospel matter. Restoring one another is not simply just a family matter, but it's also a gospel matter. Now listen to Hebrews 12, verse two. It says, we are to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and despised the shame. Now. In the first century, nothing was more shameful than a death upon a cross. Dying a criminal's death was probably as, about as shameful as, I get, as it got. Crucifixion was reserved for the worst of criminals. It is the worst of punishments. When Jesus hung on the cross, he was shamed on the cross. Naked he hung in front of everybody, open for anybody to see this is what not to do. He was ashamed upon the cross of Calvary. And yet, as shameful as it was, especially in the eyes of man, the death of Christ was honoring in the eyes of God. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And so actually, his shame led to his exaltation. Through his obedience and becoming low, God raised him and exalted him very high. And all of us apart from Christ, and this is, this is where it comes down to, apart from Christ, when we stand before a holy God because of our sin, because of our humanity, we stand guilty and shameful before a holy, perfect God. And yet, God took that shame upon himself. He took our shame upon the cross, upon himself, and gave us honor instead. Scripture tells us to acknowledge and confess the shameful sins in our life. Sin is blind. By nature, sin is self-deceiving. And when we struggle to acknowledge our sin, our brother is there to help us see it. Our brother is there to help us when we need to confess it and to repent of it and to restore us back to a right relationship with God. But everything, everything always goes back to the cross of Christ. All the guilt and all the shame was transferred over to Jesus on the cross. And so now confessing and acknowledging our sin, which would seem to be shameful, becomes actually an honorable thing in the body of Christ. Number two, God is concerned about the fruit of sin in the community, but he's also concerned about the root of sin individually. 
God is concerned about the fruit of sin in a community, but also the root of sin individually. It's sad, but when most of us hear the, the phrase church discipline, typically we, we do, we think about the scarlet letters. Adultery, divorce, addictions, alcohol, drugs, murder, wickedness, deceit, all these other things. Listen to these verses in Mark chapter 7, because Jesus addressed this pretty clearly in, in almost all the Gospels. Mark 7, verse 21. Actually, go ahead and turn there, because this is such an important passage. Mark chapter 7. Um, this will be, you can leave Galatians, and this will be the last passage we look at. Mark chapter 7, verse 21. Here's what Jesus said about the scarlet letter sins. He says, from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts. Now, if you were gonna list the worst sins, which one would have been first on the list in your mind? Would evil thoughts have been there? No, because that's something that we all deal with, right? The very first sin that Jesus points out is evil thoughts. And we're all guilty of evil thoughts. Come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Jesus says that all sinful acts start as sinful thoughts. And at the root of sin, what concerns him even more than necessarily sinful actions are the sinful desires that lie behind them. Ever heard a book that uh, Jerry Bridges wrote called Respectable Sins? I think we, we did a ladies' Bible study on respectable sins not too long ago. Jerry Bridges talks about there's, there's some sins that, that seem to be more respectable than others. You know, the occasional white lie or, or the gossip those are more respectable than the sins of adultery and fornication and, and murder, things like that. But Jerry Bridges wrote this. He says, we often live in unconscious denial of our acceptable sins. Sexual immorality isn't as acceptable as gossip, right? All sin is not equally sinful, but all sin equally violates the holiness of God. And if we go down a path that takes us away from sin at the heart level, apart from the motivations, we go down a path that is more concerned about behavior modification than heart transformation. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is not just about adjusting people's behaviors on the outside, it's about transforming the heart on the inside. Respectable sins and acceptable sins, there are none. All sin is cosmic treason against God. No matter how big or no matter how small, Bridges says this, even acceptable sins are an assault on the majesty of God and indeed are cosmic treason. If you want to catalog the worst kinds of sin, if you looked at the Bible and you said, give me the top three worst sins, how many of you would put Genesis 3 in that category? What did, he, what did they do? What did Adam and Eve do? What was the sin that was so grave? Uh, they ate a fruit. Why is that sin so terrible? 
how is that the sin that launches all of creation into fall and destruction and corruption? Their action on the outside was a reflection of their heart on the inside. In their heart, they rebelled against the true king. They listened to the creature rather than listening to the creator who is blessed forever. Their sin was an act of idolatry, of cosmic treason. They did what they wanted to do instead of what God wanted them to do. They satisfied their own desires rather than satisfying the desires that God had for them. Instead of giving God control, they took control. Instead of submitting to God, they put themselves on the throne of their hearts. The biggest challenge to church discipline and and restoration, it's not dealing with actions on the inside, it is dealing with hearts and motivations and desires on the inside. A restoring church, a gracious, loving, restoring church community is much more concerned about what's going on at the heart level than they are concerned about what's going on outside on the external level. If we want to be a church that restores one another, that has a love for a family of Christ like no other love in our life, we got to get past actions and get down to desires. We got to stop looking at the externals and start looking at the internals. And here's how that starts. Look in the mirror and realize that your own sinful heart is just as vulnerable as everybody else's to sin and corruption. And all of us, all of us are one decision away from making a very bad choice that could lead to chaos and destruction, not only of our own lives, but also the life of our church family. When you come to that realization, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Here's what that looks like. Brad, I know you did this. Let me share a little bit about my heart. Let me share a little bit about the sin that I'm struggling with on the inside too. Help me battle this just as much as I can help you in your Christian walk. Restoring relationships in the body of Christ takes us backwards to glory. Takes us backwards to what God originally created this world and his community to be. A perfect relationship with God the Father and perfect relationships with one another in the body of Christ. If we can anchor down on the truth of the gospel and restore relationships like that with gentleness, confrontation, loving confrontation, we can be a body of Christ that is centered on the gospel and centered on Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, <clears throat> thank you so much for, uh, for Galatians and, and for these, these thoughts about restoring relationships in the body of Christ. And thank you for giving us a, a way of dealing with sin in the body. And Lord, I pray that um, whether it's conflict resolution, whether it's personal sin struggles or um, any other sin that might come into the body of Christ here, and influence our family, that we would deal with those things biblically, graciously, gently, and compassionately for the sake of your glory. 
Lord, we pray that you would haste the day of your return when our faith would be sight and the backwards glory would be revealed to us. Until that day comes, help us to be steadfast on restoring one another in love, kindness, gentleness, and all the fruit of the Spirit that's described in Galatians 5. We ask this to you, Father, through the Son and by the Spirit, for you three are the one true God, and there is no God besides you. Amen. Amen.